Hi, welcome to Time Out for Humanity, a podcast that invites you to take time off for your physical and mental health. Every episode, we speak with an expert to show you how. Danny Smith is an executive consciousness coach and transformation consultant. She helps her clients remove limitations in their subconscious mind, connect to a larger reality, and achieve the most confident version of themselves at work and at home. She is an expert in guiding people to their genius zone. Find out more about her work at www.oneconsciousnesscoaching.com. Welcome, Sandy. Thank you for the nice intro, Andy. It's lovely to see you. I'm happy to be with you today. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to see you again. And um, so I'm very curious about your title. Uh, sorry, not your title, but the, the name of your website. So usually, mm. you know, people with a coaching business have, you know, um, titles or address such as, you know, um, the top or great success. They don't usually have something with consciousness in it. So what does consciousness <laughs> have to do with getting great jobs or doing really well in your, at, your, at home, in career, things like that? That's a great question. And I love talking about consciousness, so I will happily answer. Um, but I'll give you maybe a couple of answers to that. One would be that how we use consciousness as a word in society right now has a lot of different connotations. So we could say somebody is unwell, they have lost consciousness. We can say that is an unconscious move. There's lots of different ways that we can validly refer to consciousness. How I am referring to consciousness is for me, the concept that consciousness in our newer sort of models for science and reality is that everything is based made of or born from consciousness. So we are both one individual part of consciousness or child of God or soul having an earth experience from the universe, whichever metaphor you prefer is valid, but that we are each both individual whilst also being simultaneously intrinsically connected through the one consciousness system. And I think this is important because not only do I love that concept and these newer models for reality as a way to understand how to navigate a human experience, but then at a more micro level, consciousness, as we refer to it within our own mind, so we have the conscious, the conscious part of our awareness and the subconscious mind the same as the system as a whole would have parts it is aware of and parts it is not aware of is where I find that transformational growth really has potential to happen. 90 to 95% of our awareness is subconscious programs, behaviors, beliefs, patterns, and habits. So I think when we get into our own consciousness and make the the parts that some people would call the shadows or the blind spots or the parts of ourselves, the lack of self-awareness. When we bring that into the light of our conscious awareness space, we have a better capacity to make decisions that are in alignment for us and alignment for everybody else. And therefore the consciousness system as a whole, because we all have this sort of evolutionary connection with each other. Isn't that a scary thing, though, to become conscious of the subconscious? Um, and maybe part of that scariness is, um, you know, that's what maybe being scared of those things is actually what uh, prevents us from success. Definitely. I absolutely agree. Um, change can be scary and becoming aware of the let's use a computer metaphor because it's a, an easy, relatable one. When we, if we look at it like, oh, well, there's these parts of me that I don't know. They're scary. They're bad. They might be, um, they might be less evolved. Then it sort of perpetuates that fear. But if we look at it like our, our, our neuropathy or our neurological functions are merely like a computer, what we want to go and do is we want to look at 
the hard drive of that computer and we want to see where all the software is. And we want to assess what software needs to go. It's like Windows 8 or Windows Vista or something that did not serve us very well and we got to get rid of it. Or we have to look at what software might be okay, but might need a little bit of um, an OS update to 2.0 or 3.0 or 8.0. And we can look at which software serves us very well. Uh, and then I teach people how to become the programmer of software beliefs, behaviors that serves their evolutionary highest good, as well as everybody that they interact with. So yes, it can be scary, but if we find a safe way to do it and, and perspectives that make it feel less scary, then really, even if there is fear, it's a necessary part of evolution. And if we only, if we avoid things that make us uncomfortable, we don't have any opportunity for growth or change, which means we're in stagnation or de-evolution. So I sometimes say it's similar to a sales strategy. Have you ever heard the old sales strategy? And I've experienced this when I was in a sales management position or in sales, in executive sales, where back in the day, we got a phone book and it was like, okay, go call the people and get appointments. And we'd be like, this is terrifying and awful. I hate it because every time I hear no, I hurt my own feelings and feel awful. So we can incentivize ourselves. Okay, great. You're going to get $500 every time you get 20 no's. And we retrain our brains to have a different neurological response to the same data, information, or trigger. So this is what I try to help people do during this journey is we look at, I won't say the swear word because we're in good company, but I sometimes call it eating a poop sandwich. So if we're afraid of being uncomfortable and we're afraid of change and we're afraid of looking at ourselves and owning our stuff, then we're never going to evolve. So I try to explain it to people. It's like leveling up in a video game. Once you become aware or you go through the shadow or you go through the hard part or the, oh, maybe I'm the one who's kind of not showing up for people in my life or here's ways I can improve this or here's software and behaviors that don't serve me. We reframe what we make that discomfort or destabilization mean. We mean, we make it mean, uh oh, this is hard. I better get through it because I know I'm about to level up in this reality or in this game or whatever metaphor you prefer. Or in my own, this, this is how I level up in my own evolution. And the more you practice that, the better you get at it so that eventually it becomes a little more like, uh oh, I'm being destabilized. I'm about to become aware of one of my less evolved behaviors or one of my beliefs or programs that doesn't work. Well, I know I have the confidence in myself to get through it because I've proven I can. And guess what? That means I'm going to level up in my own evolution. So similar to the sales metaphor, we're incentivizing ourselves to get comfortable feeling uncomfortable. Because if, we do, if we're not comfortable feeling uncomfortable or we spend our lives completely avoiding it, then we're never going to evolve which is a valid choice, but it's not the choice that I prefer. Now, you spend a lot of time forcing yourself to feel uncomfortable. Um, yes. <laughs> and this is, Lots of it. And this is a great story. <laughs> I would love for you to tell us here. It involves your, um, your nail polishes in the ocean. Oh, yes. <laughs> so tell us that story. And, well, why, and why did you do this? And also tell oh, us yeah. why, why you went there to do that. Okay. So the story you're referring to is the story where I got bitten by a shark. And um, during that time of my life, I had become aware of the importance of both observing your own beliefs and challenging your fears. So I went through about a year to two years where I just tackled fear after fear after fear. A lot of them were very common fears like fear of failure, fear of being wrong, fear of looking foolish, fear of being alone fear of not being good enough, all those things. But then I started also tackling really every fear. I had a fear of heights, a fear of spiders, a fear of you name it. You name a fear, I probably had it. I was a very anxious child who um, has a very sensitively evolved nervous system. Uh, I have a form of autism called Asperger's that they now call or that they used to call as well as ADHD. So 
I was a very sort of highly reactive, nervous person. And I lived for a long time with anxiety. Uh, and I decided that that was not the way I wanted to live. And so that part of the way to get through that was to tackle all of these fears. One of them being a fear of sharks. So I went to Belize to go swimming with sharks. And I thought, I love animals. I will be one with the shark. I will connect to them and I will remove this fear while understanding that some fears are rational and some fears are irrational, like a fear of shark while living in landlocked Canada or in a landlocked part of Canada. So I had to go somewhere where there actually were sharks. And it was like this big, I don't know, this scary fear I had for my whole life where I did not want to go in oceans because I was terrified that a shark was going to eat me, which of course, again, is irrational, but that doesn't make it less real. And uh, so I decided to go swimming with sharks. And what I did not notice or realize ahead of time was that at that time, I had this, this preference for sparkly nail polish. So I had this like sparkly silver French manicure. And what I did not foresee was that underwater, when you're petting and connecting to them spiritually and all these wonderful things I was doing, that I was twinkling in the light, these little silver sparkles that looked like fish gills. So I saw this shark coming towards me and I'd been petting them and, and, um, and sort of connecting with them. And I saw this one coming towards me and I was like, yes, we are connecting. And it just reached up and bit me on the hand. Oh. And all of a sudden blood started oh squirting in the water and people started flapping around. And I just got very calm and very centered. And I had worked with dogs in, in the past. So I understood concepts like not pulling your hand away when you're being bitten. And I just calmly reached out and touched it between the eyes, like sort of bopped it between the eyes because I had seen that in some, I don't know, National Geographic show at some time or something. And it opened its mouth. I took my hand back and swam to the surface. And I was laughing so hard. I couldn't, I couldn't even, I couldn't even believe it. Everybody was screaming. My partner was on the boat going, what just happened? And there wasn't like a ton of blood, but there was blood around and and they saw that something happened and uh, the guide was horrified. And I just remember thinking, well, you know what? If you have these fears that you spend your whole life fearing what would happen if it happened and you cause so much suffering and struggle when the thing hasn't even happened. And then I actually had the thing happen. It wasn't all that bad. I survived it. I handled it like a champion. And I thought, that's it. I'm just not going to bother being afraid of anything ever again, unless it's something that is appropriate to be afraid of because fear itself is a very useful emotion. If you're going somewhere dark and scary or down a, a, a dark alley at night um, and you have no cell phone, then probably fear is a good, is a good thing to help you navigate out of that situation. But when we get comfortable feeling uncomfortable and comfortable tackling our fears and beliefs, there's really nothing that can hold you back from anything that you want to achieve. And realizing that our fear, what, what do they say? What is that old expression? The, the worst thing you have to, uh, the scariest thing you can fear is a fear itself or whatever that There's expression is. There's nothing to fear but I fear itself. That's it. That's it. I think that that's partially true. I don't think it's the only truth, but I do think that we suffer a lot more by our fear of what we're projecting into the future, what we think will happen if that scary thing happens, which may not actually be how that thing turns out anyways. So usually the suffering we create of what we think will happen in the future or fear of the unknown is actually not nearly as bad as the actual thing happening itself. And then us navigating through that to show ourselves, hey, I can handle life with grace and presence, whatever happens. You know, sometimes people say, yeah, but I am programmed to fear. <laughs> I'm programmed yeah. to be fearful. So, sure. So, we so, are. That's so true. It's, it's hard to sort of break out of that, uh, programming. So what are some of the things yes. that people, baby steps that people can take to reprogram their program subconsciousness? Well, the first step is simply being aware of it and having the desire to do so. So I would start with that and start congratulating yourself on what an excellent job you're doing. 
to help you build your confidence about it. You can say, I'm already aware that I want to, that I have this fear. Yay. That's an evolutionary success. I am willing to try to overcome it. Yay. Then we can also look at something like a belief and something that I would want caution people, not caution, that I would offer as a perspective to be aware of is if you believe that it'll be a lifelong journey or a hard struggle or or an epic battle against your fears that will be hard and hard to deprogram, then it will be. So instead, I would encourage people to approach it with open-mindedness and curiosity. We don't know how hard it's going to be. Maybe it's very easy to dissolve some of these fears, but we simply have a belief that it's hard. And, and that doesn't mean that it won't be hard. It might be hard, which is equally valid. But what is the alternative? The alternative is live like that forever. So some of the steps we can take are questioning the fear. We can look at how are ways I can desensitize myself to the fear? Is the fear rational? Is the fear irrational? Um, now, to be fair, it really depends on the person, um, what tools are going to work. So I'm never going to recommend one sort of protocol uh, because if somebody has a lot of historical trauma present, I would treat that very differently than somebody who I would encourage to just jump into the fear Um so I think we need to also consider that perspective that individual healing journeys are simply that individual, but trusting, I think the most important thing is questioning the belief that you can and saying, what, what beliefs do I have about this fear? What is this fear serving me? What would my life look like and feel like if I did not have this fear? What things will I be doing when I have dissolved this fear and allowing some of those positive emotions or feelings to, um, to come in and not judging the fear as less than or judging yourself for having the fear, but figuring out how you can support and nurture yourself through that fear or how to, or which assessing which tool will work for you to help you evolve that fear. But I think for me, the big one is having a belief that it'll be impossible and a belief that it'll be hard and belief that it'll be a long, lifelong journey. Maybe, but maybe not. What if, what if we believe that we are brave and we can overcome it? Um, switching gear a little bit, um, going back to your, um, um, your website's title, uh, address, One Consciousness Coaching. Why do you think so many people have difficulty knowing what they want to do with their career? Mm. Well, I do think that that goes back to um, both an evolutionary snapshot of where we currently are on the planet, as well as programming. So when we are born, we are pure potential. We know that we are um, sort of this... We come in with some rule sets, but we are essentially this, this computer hard drive waiting to be filled with programs. And as that process happens, we learn to identify with what we think will help us fit in or what we identify in, in our mind as this is what a good girl or a good boy does. This is what a good job is and a bad job is. This is what I have to do. Um, and it might be as simple as that. It might just be simple as societal programming because at this point in evolution, we were at a point where we valued productivity, what we can produce, how well we can produce it. And we made choices based on, um, on a different set of parameters than what we're currently evolving to now. So there's some historical evolutionary stuff left over. The other reason is that when we're children and we're in this vulnerable phase, what we have to do, have to, what we tend to do is we tend to create our self-concept or our ego. And what that might look like is let's say that you grew up in a family who valued academics very much. And your parents were very proud of you if you performed well in school. 
and your grades were very important and you had to be a lawyer, be a doctor, be a whatever in order to make your parents happy. Because we are an interdependent species um, and love and belonging is our fundamental biological, neurological need of the human species. And we are so reliant on our parents, caregivers and support network in childhood we decide that we have to do what would be seen or felt as as good and as acceptable to our town, race, religion, family, upbringing, whatever that is. And what we're shifting to now, I believe, is more of a concept of what are your innate talents and your innate gifts and how do we nurture them? So let's go back to our example Let's say you grew up in this family that valued academics and that you thought that anything that was less than that ideation was lesser than. But say you were fantastic at understanding nature naturally and you wanted to be outside and you thought being a landscaper would be amazing because you were fascinated with how people's gardens looked. Um you would very quickly put that part of yourself into your subconscious because that part of you would not have been approved of by your family unit or society at that time. So it becomes a subconscious or aspect of ourselves that we are not aware of. So then we would follow the path that our self-concept deemed to be the best path or perhaps there's a practicality in there as well. For instance, you want to be a ballerina, but all of a sudden you're a single mother and you have to provide for your child. So you do what it takes to get the job done. There could also be an aspect of that. Um, so I think any or all of those could be possibilities as to why people end up in a career that is not fitting to them. And one of the ways that we can discover what that person's genius zone is, is helping them identify which parts of themselves are in the subconscious, the parts that they did not approve of or became ashamed of or disidentified or disassociated from in order to fit in because we confuse fitting in with love and belonging. So it's less painful for us to fragment or disassociate from parts of ourselves than it is to be pushed out or seen as an outsider or bad or wrong by the people that we need when we're young in order to survive. So helping people get comfortable feeling uncomfortable so that we can challenge which parts of us are authenticity and which parts of ourselves are coping strategies or self-concept can really help people become clear on what makes them feel in alignment, what their genius zone is, what their unique, precious gift is that they have to offer the world and share with the world, and then figure out how can they balance that with earning money, not neglecting responsibilities or mortgages and all of those things, um, and finding a way to find balance with what, what they need to fill their soul, the, the authentic parts of themselves to satisfy those needs and those genius zones, and what they need to do to, to survive or thrive um, in whatever their current situation is financially, family-wise, and personally. Could you give us um, some examples of um, how you have helped people access their subconsciousness and discover their genius zone and revitalize their career and of course you know keep confidentiality and um, just give us some examples this is fascinating um so like i said everybody's journey is different i try not to um to expect everybody to learn or grow in the same way and i find different tools work for different people i'm trained in i don't know a lot of modalities but to be honest i don't use most of them what I try to do is I try to help teach people how to navigate their own consciousness by learning to understand how to use their emotional navigation system, asking questions, and offering them different perspectives to see what sticks. So for instance, I've had clients who were, let's say, in a very, um, in a very high paying, high stress, 
uh, corporate environment who discovered that what they wanted to do was become a massage therapist or, um, or a landscaper. And these were things that they had always not even consciously been aware of wanting to do. And we got there by finding out what makes you feel good. What are your secret fantasies when you were a kid that you're like, well, I'm never going to be that. What's that thing? Let's look at that. Let's see how that makes you feel. Let's see. Let's look at, I've always decided, I've always, I made a decision, I think, when I was young that I would never do a job that didn't feel good. So when people ask, what do you do for work? I'm like, I've never worked a day in my life. I just find things that I enjoy doing and then I figure out how to get paid for them. And when I get bored of something or it no longer serves me or I don't enjoy it anymore, then I consciously, without leaving them in the dust or anything, I, I switch career paths or I switch to a different job or I try something new. And sometimes people just simply need the permission that that's okay and that does not make them less valuable. I've also found people in a corporate environment who simply needed a, a slight shift of mindset about how they perceive the value in the job that they were doing. So say thinking, oh, I just go to the same job and I see the same people every day and um, I don't like it. We can look at what needs are not being met in their life that they could maybe get met through a hobby or a special interest or an online course. How can they meet that need in another way? And how can they then look at the job that they are doing and find the value they have? Hey, without me coming to work every day and making sure that this factory is producing the right amount of shoes per day, well, you know what? A lot of people would be walking around with sore feet and they wouldn't be able to do their jobs and they wouldn't be able to go for a walk with their family and they wouldn't be able to, um, and, and all the people that work at this company wouldn't be able to feed their families. And so it's, it's also finding ways, in what ways am I being val of value but maybe sabotaging my aware awareness of it or lacking awareness of it because I have some sort of a negative program or software or perhaps just didn't just weren't aware of the larger perspective of how they were being of value to the planet. And then assessing, is there things you like about your job, you know, and weigh the risk, uh, the pros and cons of leaving that job and then finding other ways to get the needs met that aren't being met by the job the same as we can in a relationship. Am I expecting this one thing to fill all my needs? Well, what are other ways I could fill those needs and what do I value about what I'm doing? So it could be either. It's hard to say it without a specific person in mind. Um, in your um, website, you talked about the superpowers of ADHD. Tell us more about that. Well, First of all, neurodiversity absolutely can be a superpower or an exceptionality, but I would like to start by also validating everybody who has ADD, ADHD, Asperger's, a different form of autism, whatever your neurodivergence is, that it is equally valid that it can absolutely positively be a disability um, if you do not know how to manage it, if you do not know how to thrive. The example I think we often use is Am I a monkey who's being judged in the world based on how well I swim across a lake? Or am I a fish judging myself based on how well I can climb a tree? So first of all, we look at what is not working. What, um, why is it, what ways is it being a disability? But understanding that these neurodiversities and exceptionalities for every place that our brain has what we like to call a deficit or a difference, um, I don't really mind what word you use, that there is also a way our brain has compensated, which creates exceptionalities. So we, our brains can get very overwhelmed and very overheated very easily. And, it, and we can break down if we don't have proper sleep, if we don't have proper eating habits, if we don't have an understanding of our giant emotions or our, um, or the way that our brain works with time and executive function, then I sometimes use the metaphor of we're like a, like a race car engine. I have a very finely tuned sports car that I like to drive. And if I take my sports car and I put regular fuel 
in that gas tank and a subpar oil, then that car is going to look like a piece of junk and it's going to break down and all of the intricate um, sort of super things that are, that are exceptional about it are going to stop working and it's, they're going to disconnect. But if I'm fueling it properly, maintaining it properly and understand the, what that engine is good at, then it's going to be the highest performance car on the road. That doesn't mean we only need sports cars. We also need sedans. We also need SUVs and we also need minivans. So we need people on both the neurodivergent spectrum and what we call the neurotypical spectrum. They are all valid and they all have value. But if you are on the ADD or ADHD spectrum, then a lot of our common opportunities can create a lot of chaos in our life um, or a lot of chaos in other people's lives that we need to clean up after us or help us with our executive function or because we experience so much um, negative feedback as children, as adults, we have these paralyzing self-concepts. Once we can deprogram those and, and find those genius zones and stop expecting ourselves to, to be a, a fish that can climb a tree well, instead we can look at, great, what's the best path to swim across this lake and be excellent at it? And having that support in the mind, body, spirit um, will allow us to do the things we're excellent at. We are out-of-the-box thinkers. We are creative. We are fantastic under pressure. The more chaotic things get around us, the more we're like, no problem, I got this. It's when we're bored, understimulated, or overthinking things that we sort of fall apart. So I don't want to say it's only a superpower because that might make it feel to people that are suffering that their suffering is not valid and their suffering is absolutely valid, but it's not the only option for you. I believe you me. And when you understand how your brain works, instead of comparing your brain to other people's brains and you learn to focus on your strength and deprogram some of the, the negative, the consequences of all of the negative feedback we receive as children, because we're not quite fitting in or we're not doing things typically, um, then, then yeah, it can absolutely positively become a superpower. I think it was an evolutionary uh, necessity. Um, and I think that we need, we need all types of brains and minds and we need to start focusing on our strengths and, and then also being aware of our deficits and knowing how to work on them. And for ADD or ADHD or Asperger's, there's absolutely strategies that we can use to create that perfect environment so that everything is running sort of as the sports car engine we're supposed to be instead of having all of these, um, these glitches. And looking like we're like the engines overheating on the side of the road. For instance, in order to fuel our brains, we need four to five times the amount of glucose um, because we need a lot of coolant for that engine because it's always going. So if, if the engine, if we want to prevent the engine from overheating, we need to eat a lot of fruit. But our brains just tell us you need sugar. So we're like, oh, great sugar. Oh, carbs. Sure. Great. And then what we start doing is eating things that require units of energy to digest instead of things that provide us units of energy. So that's a common one for people with ADD or ADHD is teaching us how to fuel, make sure that we're putting premium fuel in the engine and premium oil in the oil reserve so that everything can function properly and that we're not accidentally, with good intention, we're not accidentally doing things that sabotage our eating, our sleep, our thinking patterns and things like that. Wow. You, um, you know, when you were in the, um, you were with the uh, shock, you were very calm. You did not uh, freak out when uh, the, the shock bit you. Um, is that calmness one of the superpowers of ADHD? Yes, absolutely. We can be, we can be great under pressure. You'll see a lot of people with ADD or ADHD uh, in, in high-level C-suite corporate positions because they can think, we can think about a lot of different things at once. Um, our brain thrives under pressure, which is why we tend to, if we have two months to do a project, we won't do it. We'll ignore it. We'll avoid it. We'll beat ourselves up for not getting to it. But then 24 hours before it's due and the pressure comes on, that's when we perform best. And we're like, 
No problem. I'm going to knock this out in 24 hours. No problem. Or you'll see a lot of us in um, like high stress executive positions as well as um, entrepreneurship uh, because we can multitask very well when we have that support system underneath us. Uh, we're very creative out of the box thinkers and a lot of the high stress jobs like um, say emergency room nursing or EMTs or firefighters, people like that. Sometimes people with neurodivergence or neurodiversity are more attracted to those jobs and we're great at them because we're great under pressure when we have that, when we have that supportive baseline. Not if we're, if everything's out of, of, of balance, but at our baseline, we are, we are, we, yes, we're absolutely excellent under pressure. That is one of our superpowers. You know, when you talked about people waiting till the last, almost the last minute, and then when the pressure is on, they do things, um, that can be misinterpreted as procrastinating. Mm -hmm. So it's so interesting that if we know ourselves, then we can say, oh, that's not how I work. And, and so we, we, we would be a resilient against these judgments against how we work, right? Yes. Instead of feeling guilty that, oh, I'm just a procrastinator and I always do things the last minute and say, yeah. actually, I am a, um, I don't know what you call it, but you know, those, those, uh, those speed racer that just zoom, that just like goes from zero to 60 in the last part of the race. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> You're right. And that can help reprogram our negative self-talk or our judgments of ourselves. Like I am lazy. I'm a procrastinator. Um, whatever those thoughts are. And in addition, so we can, yes, we can acknowledge that the way our brain chemistry works is we are very reward based. So if our brain chemical pump, this is not a very scientific explanation, but it's going to get the point across. Um, if we, if our brain chemicals are like, the pump is sort of lazy and it's not pumping out a lot of motivation. And we're like, okay, I know I have to do the thing. Okay. I'm going to do this thing. And then we go to, and it's like, we can't, but once we get that pressure, then we get adrenaline and adrenaline kicks our brain chemistry um, deficits or differences into action. So yes, you're absolutely right. That's a really great point that we can reframe how we look at ourselves, how we talk to ourselves and in addition to that, we can also figure out how our brain works and biohack ourselves into success. So I know if I'm really lazy, like I'm starting a podcast and there's a lot of action steps that I don't prefer that go along with that. And I'll just procrastinate, well, call it whatever you want. I will procrastinate. I won't do it. I'll avoid it. Uh, I'll put it off. It'll drag out. So what I have to do is I have to set myself deadlines. I have to set myself consequences or... And then force myself to be under, oh, I'm under pressure. Oh, I have to get it done by Wednesday because that's the date I decided. So all of a sudden, Monday, I kick into high gear and I get done in two days, what takes a lot of people three months because we also have the gift of hyper-focus. But again, we have to balance that because we have to understand it's adrenaline-based and we have to be supporting our brain and supporting our body because we can also get burnt out. Because if we're only relying on that adrenaline to get us through then that can have consequences on our body. So we have to make sure that we're being mindful of balancing that. Another thing we can do is learn to incentivize ourselves with positive rewards by breaking a task down into micro, micro, micro steps. And then each time we complete a micro step being like, yes, proof I'm awesome, nailed it. Now I'm going to go hang out and, and go for a walk, play with the dog, have a smoothie, play video games, surf the internet, pick up my phone, whatever it is for 15 minutes. Then I'm going to tackle another 15-minute tiny task. So breaking big projects down into tiny pieces can also be helpful as well as relying on our own brain chemistry and adrenaline to, to kick us into action when we need to. So there's lots of different strategies that work for different people or maybe different tools can work in different situations to help us use the way our brain our brain naturally wants to work in our favor instead of against us or against our self-concept and self-esteem. 
have you always known all this stuff, or <laughs> you were born and you just know all this? Since I was born, <laughs> so I was born and I was like, "Listen, world, I'm going to sort everybody out." No, so tell us how um, did you learn all this? This is amazing. Um, I learned all of this because I love learning, um, and I that's my favorite activity. I'm I've never been married. I don't have kids. I choose to learn and try things and. My gift of Asperger's is that I am excellent at connecting dots. I was what they called a gifted child. I have a very keen mind. And what my special interest in is human behavior. So because I didn't quite understand how humans worked as a young child with Asperger's or what they now call autism um, spectrum, which is something I... Anyways, that's a different story that I don't think is a helpful label that we're categorizing everything together right now. But because I had that deficit and my special interest or genius zone is people, I've been studying human behavior, both in myself and others since I was four years old to survive. Um, I did not have any diagnoses available to me. So I spent a lot of my years suffering the consequences of not having it be a superpower of having it be lead to my anxiety, my depression, my mental illness, my physical illness, my terrible self-esteem. And I had to figure out myself how to get through that because at that time we didn't have the knowledge and awareness we do now. Uh, and when I got, so I was already well on my way and had figured out most of the common concepts um, through sheer will and, and self-reflection for decades. And then once I heard the word and started studying it, I used my power of hyperfocus to obsessively study everything I could about it for many years and then try everything on myself, observe other people. And, it, but at the same time, there was something I did naturally always know, which I knew people were different. And I could tell that different people behaved different ways. In my mind, I used to call it X factor. I used to say, oh, that person has X factor. And that was just how I, how I categorized that information in my brain. Um, so I guess part of it was intrinsic knowledge. Part of it was forced or experiential or, or discovery knowledge. And part of it was just trying to learn everything I could. So I read as many magazines, articles, courses. Uh, I read the latest neuroscience. I work with people constantly who a lot of them, uh, aren't aware or have just become aware that they're neurodivergent, um, and whether they prefer those labels or not doesn't matter. But if we can understand um, how our brains work and figure out how to improve our self-concept and align ourselves with the things that make us feel good that we're excellent at without neglecting the other things, finding ways to find that balance or hire out the things that we're terrible at, then, yeah, there's absolutely nothing but exceptionality and, um, and possibility waiting for everybody, neurodivergent or neurotypical. They're just, whether I'm working with a neurodivergent somewhere on that spectrum or somebody on the neurotypical spectrum, because everybody is different. We're not just putting people into little boxes, but, but understanding how somebody works and how they tick and then teaching them how they work and how they tick and how they can support whatever their natural genius zones are and whatever their preferences are and helping them find their authenticity versus those parts that we identify with is just a recipe for success. And then teaching them all those tools so that they have their own power and empowerment and can navigate the human experience or the soul journey or the, um, the evolutionary opportunity with ease, grace and knowledge and power and empowerment. What is the purpose of the soul journey? Oh, just like questions. Okay, perfect. <laughs> um, I think I love that question. I'm like, yes, let's get into this. My, this is my genius zone. Um, I think that the purpose of the soul journey from we're a multidimensional species. So let's look at it from the human perspective as well as source perspective or the universe perspective or the one consciousness perspective. Um, or God's perspective, whichever metaphor you prefer and resonates to you is completely valid. So from that perspective, the purpose of a, of a soul journey or an incarnation is to evolve the 
understanding, self-awareness, and integration of the system as a whole by fragmenting or breaking into individual perspectives. Sandy, Andy, other people. Um, so the purpose of it from the source perspective or the system perspective is to grow, evolve, and separate in order to offer those polarizing or polarities or opposite views, perspectives, or souls in order to understand itself. And then we incarnate and we will probably have some sort of a specific mission or goal or uh, area or deficiency that we want to work on that helps both us as a soul as well as the system as a whole of which we are a part. So if it's a system of, of I don't know if fractals is the right word, um, if it's a system of mirroring or fragmentation, then that consciousness system or universe as a whole or source fragments into us in order for us to look at different perspectives. We need that polarity. Otherwise, it would just be neutrality and nothingness. And then when we incarnate, we do the same thing. And like we talked about at the beginning, we have those parts of us that fragment, split, that we disidentify from, that we disassociate from or banished to the subconscious. And our journey is to bring the subconscious into the light of our conscious awareness space. It's a self-awareness journey, both on the soul level or our level, the Sandy and Andy level currently that we're calling ourselves, as well as the system as a whole. Um, so I think that that's why if we get really comfortable feeling uncomfortable, it's going to, and, and learn to have compassion for ourselves and compassion for others, and evolve ourselves, then we're going to start realizing just how much we as individuals affect the collective consciousness in all of its levels and are navigating or manifesting or co-creating the evolutionary direction of our species through each individual evolutionary journey. And how does love fit into all of this? You ask really good questions. This is fun. Um, from my perspective, love is, love is the path back towards unification. Love, I think, is the, is also the goal. Love is the path to enlightenment or integration. Love is the opposite direction of separation, which we first have is all this separation. We can see that in, in our, in our evolutionary history, how much separation and fighting and, and I am me and you are you, and I am this color and you are that color. I am this religion. You are that religion and love. When we learn to love ourselves and integrate the aspects of ourselves and start to feel higher vibe, as we say, then we start to resonate at a higher frequency and then we start to feel our connection to others. And then when we love our, when we learn to love ourselves, especially the parts of ourselves that we don't approve of that might need evolving and we learn to love others and we learn to understand that we are all doing our best and we're all having a valid, unique evolutionary journey, then love will be the answer for us to co-create the evolutionary direction of this species, other species, and the consciousness system as a whole. Do you ever think that in your personal case where um, you began this journey with what you consider a problem, quote unquote problem of understanding others, um, do you think that, and with your idea that, you know, we do incarnate, uh, or we've reincarnated, and sometimes we may incarnate several times, reincarnate several times. Um, do you ever think of the idea that you might have come from another star system where people just interact differently? <laughs> and that's why you're here and you're learning this and you're going to bring this information back to your own star system and say, Hey, you know, back there on earth, this is how they do it. This is how they communicate. And do you ever have yeah. things, things like this? I have definitely wondered that. I used to write poetry as a child 
about stars. And I mean, we didn't have the internet. I had never heard of aliens or anything like that. But I would say it's fair to say that I always had a sense that I was from somewhere else. I also remember experiences when I was a young child in school, feeling very out of place and constantly worrying that people weren't seeing a bigger picture or people were being ineffective with their communication. Or I'd see somebody say, I'm very happy. And I would sense because I could feel what they felt that they were not happy. And I'd be like, why are they lying? And I would just constantly be thinking, thinking, thinking. And I remember the first time I heard sort of a voice or a guidance or whatever you prefer to call it, um, said something along the lines to me of right now, I just want you to sit here and be, I think it was in grade three. I just want you to sit here and be a human child. Just focus on the work, focus on the people and stop worrying about this. You just have to be a human right now. And I remember thinking, well, I don't know what that means. Like, and I'm not going to tell people because they'll think I'm crazy. But I remember this huge sense of comfort coming over me. Um, I do know that it's very popular amongst people with ADD, ADHD, Asperger's, any of the neurodivergencies, empaths, indigo children, um, any number of the other metaphors that we have to categorize information, which can be helpful. We don't have to put things in boxes, but we do have to categorize information to understand it better. Um, it is very popular for people to think they're from another planet. Um, now, if we look at a larger model for reality and the probability that we are alone and that there's only this one experience generated from consciousness, I think that's absurd. I always have. I've always thought that's completely us being self-centered and a little bit obtuse because there's absolutely no way that if we exist with this much complexity, that there's not other dimensions, densities, or um, experiential realities happening in sim simultaneously. And science every day more and more is showing evidence of, of what we of what many of us have intrinsically believed. So I don't know if it's as much a physical, we came from another planet, but at the same time, maybe we did. I don't know. It's, it's definitely, I'm open to, um, I'm definitely open to the possibility and I've definitely had lots of experiences or interactions in my life with things that are not part of the human um, rule set at this time. So yes, I, from a ch young child, I believe that that was part of why I was here, but also I chose to be here because obviously I had stuff to work on too, which I'm tackling every day. <laughs> well, um, it's been great um, interviewing you and I learned so much. Um, please Great. Come back and um, talk to us more. I'd love to anytime. This is like my favorite thing to do, for sure. Thank you so much, Sandy. You're welcome. To learn more about Time Out and NIMSA, go to nimsa.me. Join our social media and continue the conversation on Time Out for Humanity. Let us know what topics you would like us to cover.